Welcome back to Girls Camp. It is me, Haley Rawl, your host. Happy Wednesday or happy day of listening, whichever day that may be. I am so happy you're here and I cannot wait for you to listen to today's interview with our guest, Bria Lee Nelson. Bria's story is so impactful and so powerful on so many levels. I've been reflecting on it so much since we interviewed a couple of weeks ago. Bria was baptized into the church at age nine without her mother knowing, and soon after she was placed into foster care and then adopted by a Mormon family in Idaho, and she has so much wisdom and insight. I found her story really illuminating to a lot of aspects of Mormonism that I hadn't quite understood in the way that she articulated them, and it's kind of helped me to reflect differently on my own experience with Mormonism and also just to learn a lot about others' experiences in Mormonism and post-Mormonism. Bria is a woman of color, and she also shares how that has shaped her experience both as a Mormon and as a post-Mormon, as a woman, a working professional in Utah. There is just so much goodness and so much learning that is in this episode. Before we dive in, a little campfire chat. I just wanted to say I am really in the Halloween spirit this season. I don't know what it is because I was kind of resistant to it at first, but I am loving all things spooky. I actually did the recording for next week's episode today. I did the Mormon horror stories and horror lore that you all wrote in, and there are some spooky stories and also just so much interesting intersection between the Mormonism thing and the paranormal thing, and I think it's just going to be such a fun episode. I had my friend Bailey join me to help me react and break it all down, and I've just been kind of head first into the spooky Halloween vibes. I'm planning a fun Halloween party with some girlfriends. I'm just loving Halloween this season. Maybe having kids makes it exciting in a different way that I haven't felt in a long time. Or maybe, as Russell M. Nelson said, I've just been, what is it, seduced by evil spirits and doctrines of devils, I think is the scripture he quoted, referring to people who have stepped away from Mormonism. So you know what? Maybe he's right, because I'm all about the ghosts and the demons and the spooky stories, even though I still get so scared and I'm actually kind of a lightweight when it comes to scary stuff, but I like to dabble. I also wanted to quickly mention that I'm doing a little sale on the Girls Camp tote bags. I hit 10K followers on Instagram over the weekend, which numbers are kind of a funny thing on social media, but it feels like a big deal to me. It feels like a big deal that this community is thriving. It feels so exciting and comforting and validating in all the ways that there are so many of us here at Girls Camp and connecting over this shared experience, or if the experience isn't shared, just connecting over the humanity that underlies the shared experience of faith transition, faith crisis, etc. And so I am doing a little 10% off and free shipping 
on the girls camp tote bags. So if you haven't grabbed a tote yet, now is the time that will be running until the end of the week. So jump on it. I love you all. I really, really do. I mean it when I say it. And here is this week's interview with Bria Lee Nelson. Enjoy. Wow, we have so much to get into. I know, it's so fun. I can't wait. Okay, welcome, Bria, to Girls Camp. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here. I cannot wait to talk with you. I was just saying, but we've been voice memoing back and forth. I feel like you have such a rich story. There are so many threads of your story that I'm really excited to get into. We are just going to talk about your story as a Mormon, a post-Mormon. You are also a woman of color, and we're going to talk about how that shapes your experience both as a Mormon and as a post-Mormon. You are also a model in the Utah modeling scene, so we're going to be talking about that. Just lots to get into. Perfect. I'm excited. Yes, I can't wait. (laughs) Happy to be here. Let's start with your upbringing and then where Mormonism came into the picture because you came to Mormonism a little later on. You were baptized at nine, right? Yeah. Okay. So tell me about that. Tell me about your upbringing and kind of what got you to the point of being baptized at nine. I lived with my um, birth parents. I'm adopted. So I I lived with my birth parents up until the age of like nine, nine and a half is when I was put into foster care. But about a year or two before... I was living with my mom only. She was a single mom and I had two siblings, a brother and a sister. And we lived in a small town called Malad, Idaho. Oh, Malad. That actually sounds town. familiar to me. <laughs> it's, it's a little tiny town. Yeah. Is it outside of, where is it close to in Idaho? Oh man, I don't even know. Yeah. Like, I mean, you were a kid. Preston. Okay. I yeah. lived in Preston. That's where my yeah. foster home Maybe was. Maybe I've driven so. through it before. Yeah. He- headed to Pocatello. Nice. You know? So we lived there with my mom as a single mom. Mm. And we had a next door neighbor that had a little girl a little bit younger than me. But I was like, friends. Like, all I want is friends. I don't know this city or not even a city. I don't know this town. Mm-hmm. And so I started hanging out with her. Whenever I'd go over, there happened to be missionaries a lot because her dad was a bishop. Mm-hmm. And so then the conversation started being, well, have you heard about any of this? And that those little like sprinkles started coming in and I started sitting in at family home evenings. I started going to church with them then. Mm-hmm. And then the conversation of, you've been doing this for about a year. Are you wanting to get baptized? I feel like my experience is even more unique because my mom didn't know any of it really. And it's been kind of interesting because now I'm in contact with my birth mom after about 17 years. Wow. We actually had that conversation of like, it's so interesting that you, you know, your life turned the way it did because I didn't even know you got baptized. And though I was living with my mom. Yeah, she was your legal caretaker at the time. She didn't even know of my baptism because it was so kind of like, oh, I'm going with them to go do this. She didn't know like the the real implications of what a baptism meant. Yeah. And kind of the, if you believe the eternal um, implications of being yeah. baptized. And so that's kind of crazy. Yeah. From the, from the jump. And now yeah. looking back of my story, I felt like a lot of my experience has been fraudulent in that way of mm. just feeling like I didn't even get a proper explanation to my loved ones. Like my dad, of course, my dad had no idea because he wasn't even in the picture at that mm-hmm. time. Now looking back, I'm just like, hmm. Yeah. It's just a kind of weird taste on it. Absolutely. I adore the family. I really do. I've had a really good experience with them. 
I haven't been able to, of course, like talk to them about that experience, but I do hold um, a level of respect for them. Mm. Uh, there, it was a really hard time in my life. I think a lot of people feel this way. Mormonism or religion in general gives you kind of a a roadmap, right? Of like, Absolutely. okay, we all have trials and this is your trial, but here is your, your reaped benefit, right? Absolutely. Um, and so I felt like that was a good way for me to kind of get over the, a lot of the trauma that I experienced. Yeah. Was it kind of a sense of safety, of community, yes. all those things? And definitely community. My mom was a single mom. We were living in a new town. Since I started going to church, I had friends, built-in friends, because of, you know, activity days and things like that. And not only that, now people knew who I was. I wasn't just a little girl by herself with a single mom working countless jobs to try to keep us afloat now that they knew who i was my story they were there to support yeah which is yeah which a, is a great benefit you absolutely know? Like, i think absolutely. that's a huge benefit for a lot of people now that i'm out of it i also feel like that's a in some sense sometimes a really big predatory um aspect of the church or yeah. just um the structure of the church at least absolutely you were incredibly vulnerable incredibly you were a child vulnerable. yeah <laughs> as you said your mother was not involved it's it's so complicated you mm-hmm. spoke to it really beautifully because it can be a good thing in one sense but you can also look back and say well maybe i was sold one thing and that wasn't really the case and i'm sure we'll unpack all that came from you <laughs> being a mormon subsequently from being baptized sounds like it was a good thing for the time. Yeah. And I think that's an okay thing for a lot of people. I look back on it thinking it was okay for the time. Mm-hmm. Like that's I think that's what I needed. Yeah. And I am not not super old. I'm 25, you know. I still have a lot to learn and a lot of growth and a lot of unpacking that mm-hmm. because I feel like now that I'm post-Mormon, I have just been trying to live and appreciate the life I have now. I haven't really taking the time to dwell yeah on it yeah um which i think is everybody's prerogative when they leave the church they can kind of process it however they want but i ended up getting baptized i was with my mom then and about a year and then some family things happened and i was my brother my sister and i were all put into foster care mm-hmm. in malad still in preston actually okay. yeah we were taken away from this by the state and then mm. that day like literally it felt like seconds where they were just like, grab a garbage bag, fill what you can, mm. you're leaving. Wow. And we were placed a couple hours later. That night, my sister ran away. She was a little bit older. She's four years older than me. So she ran away and left with my brother and I. That's just who Wow. we had each other. And Is your brother younger than you? He's four years younger than okay. me. Okay. Yep. And my brother and I ended up staying in foster care for four and a half years. Mm. You were baptized at nine. Mm-hmm. And then you were put in foster care at 10. I was baptized on my ninth birthday, put in foster care at nine and a half. Okay. Yep. So very soon after being baptized. Yeah. Wow. And we were placed in a family that grew up LDS, mm. but no longer practiced it. Oh, interesting. Um, all of their children did, but the parents um, themselves did not practice. So I still continued, even though I didn't have, you know, adults, because I was used to that. I didn't have adults that you know, forced me to go. I thought that I needed to go because I did make this promise. I I said I would do it and I've got to do it. Yeah. On your own from the very beginning. Uh Mm -hmm. I would walk to church Mm. and luckily there were neighbors that I started becoming friends with. They had kids my age. They became a huge resource for me in the church. 
I no longer had to walk. I had people that even still to this day are, I am incredibly close to. Good. Yeah. So yeah, I, I continued the good old faith train as best as I could, even as a young girl. And it's actually cool to look at past journals and things like that because journaling is huge in the church, right? I was never great at it, but I tried mm-hmm. because I, I did know like as somebody who was in foster care and then later to be adopted, I didn't have a long line of anything. I didn't, I didn't know my medical history. I didn't know anything. Yeah. You know, even though I was, was with my parents for so long, I still didn't know much about them. I was so young to yeah. really grasp adult concepts. You Absolutely. Know? So I wanted to do that for my family line. But to look back and to see, even as a young girl, wanting to be best, not better, not not a good Mormon. I needed to be the best I could because I knew the implications of who I was. I was black. I wasn't even supposed to be here, right? Mm. I, I, and at 13, that was my first dose of being told the mark of Cain, mm-hmm. where my black skin came from, you know, and was I prepared to live my life as a Mormon with that knowledge? Yeah. And that was, I think, truthfully, that was my first like shelf, shelf either breaker or at least, you know, it shook some, some weight. things. Yeah. Some weight yeah, on the shelf. Some, it put some weight on there because I didn't even know up until 13, I had no idea that black people were not allowed in the church until 1978. Yeah. Had no idea. Because you were so young. I was so young. Yeah. And it's not like the missionaries are teaching that anyway, even to full grown adults. But as an eight, nine year old, you're not going to be asking those questions. Right. Exactly. Preston is a very conservative and primarily, primarily white. I was going to say probably very, very white. Yeah. I had maybe three people that I could see that were of deeper skin tone. Mm-hmm. Like it's primarily white. Yeah, nobody's chatting about that in, you know, ev- sacrament meetings. Yeah, Sunday school, or any Sunday primary. School. Yeah. <laughs> primary. And so, yeah, that was one of my first experiences. But still, I was like, I've got to continue. And I held, you know, Beehive president, my made president, moral president. I was always asked to speak in church. Mm. And uh, now looking back, I wonder, is it to kind of showcase diversity, diversity mm-hmm. and that, and I think this is maybe just a personal feeling, but it, you know, black people can be valiant, right? That valiant mm. word, they, they can be that. Look, she's an example of this. You guys have seen her grow up. You know, she's done walked the walk and talked the talk from being in foster care to being adopted. I was adopted into another Mormon family, but practicing Mormon. At what age? 14. Okay. Mm-hmm. You were attending church all through mm-hmm. being with your foster family yeah. and then were adopted into a practicing LDS family at yeah. 14. And even though I was practicing, I was still a kid. I kissed boys. I was boy crazy. You know, I, I was Same I was here. a kid in a mm-hmm. small town. That's uh-huh. either like <laughs> what are you gonna do, do drugs, like start or you're making out with boys on fire, or you're making out with boys. You know, and I was like, let me do the least of evil. Yeah, but you know, like still, some people viewed that as I was I could have been viewed as promiscuous mm-hmm. or whatever they like to throw on us young girls, right? Yeah. But then I get adopted into a practicing Mormon family. When we had our application for being adopted, that was something that I I said I wanted to be in a family that was practicing Mormon because that's all I knew at that. You know, that was like what I knew. Yeah, makes sense. And so it was really comforting that we were able to match with a family that 
were practicing Mormons. My parents were interesting because I would hear all the time these really strict Mormon parents, and they weren't really that. They had some things that they were strict on. Like, I was the first girl. They had four boys of their own. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I was the first girl, but I wasn't allowed to wear leggings mm-hmm. at all. Mm-hmm. That was a tight pants. We had to, in, I w- in ninth grade, it was still considered junior high. Mm. We had uniforms. I wasn't al- allowed to wear skirts, and that was a part of the uniforms that you can wear. So I had to wear slacks, but my slacks couldn't be too tight. Wow. Mm-hmm. So my, very intense on the clothing. The clothing roles. was like real deal. And now, like I said, I feel like a, a lot of my life is like looking back. Yeah. I feel like it was because my parents never had a girl. So they're like, we've got to protect her. Air on the yes, side of slacks. Side of, <laughs> yes. And also, this is an, a conversation that I've had with my dad. He has now passed. He never wanted to be put in a position where anyone could say anything weird about him versus his daughter. He had seen that in a lot of foster families because they were foster family for a long time. And he never wanted to be put in that position of allowing his daughter to be viewed a certain way or people think that he's viewing his daughter a certain way, which I respect. And we had that conversation a couple years later, getting older. I'm in competitive or all-star cheer. I cannot wear granny panties in my uniform. It's yeah, just not it's cute. not going to work. It doesn't cut it. I can't, it's not comfortable. Yeah. Having that conversation with my parents like, I need to wear a thong. Like this is where we're at. We're at a crossroads yeah. and we're here. I, I have to. <laughs> I have to. My mom finally took me to go get my first thong. Mm, big deal. Big deal. It was a big deal. And I remember like I still remember that feeling of, wow, they're trusting me. Like I can wear this. Mm. And that's not going to make me bad. Mm. It's not going to make me choose bad things. Mm-hmm. And then I would wear thongs and leggings. Oh. <laughs> I was, wor- I was, I started working young, you know, babysitting and then actually getting an actual job. So I was able to buy my own clothes. I remember walking past my mom with leggings and like a shorter shirt, not a crop top, but just a shirt that was showing yeah. my bum. Mm-hmm. I'm also um, gifted in the back. I always have been. Mm-hmm. <laughs> showing off that booty. Yes. Yes. I, I have a, a, a butt that's noticeable and she didn't say anything. And so I was like, okay. Is this where we're at? Yeah, I'm going to do it. Can we do this? (laughs) And they never said anything from there on. And so I think that there was like a level of trust, of course, and also just maybe them coming to the realization that, A, this is not going to turn her into a hoochie mama. Mm -hmm. B, she's in a phase of life and she's doing activities that legitimately require certain undergarments. She's fine. It was a good time in our relationship to learn like they're trusting me and I can trust them to let me make my own decisions. Yeah, absolutely. But not without a lot of previous history of baggage around clothing items and around what those mean in a lot of layers, right? Not just the Mormon layer, as you mentioned, something I wouldn't have even thought of, but with being in a foster family and how that can maybe be an added layer for your father, as he said. So yeah, that's wonderful that you got to that point. And it's a very interesting aspect of Mormon culture generally that there's so much drama around leggings and thongs and what have you. Over a piece of clothing. Like, yeah, they did kind of make like a tizzy about the clothing. Yet the second anybody would bring up garments, what are we going to say? It's just underwear. Just leave it alone. Like, Mm, it's just my, you know, like 
Yet you're commenting on when people wear crop tops and short shorts and, you know, and that was a huge conversation with my parents was I cheered. So we would, we'd go to cheer camp and we'd wear, um, like Nike pros, right? Yeah. You cannot wear those around your brothers at all. Mm. Like do not come home in those. You can sweats on. That was a huge thing at first. I don't know really when it became lackadaisical. Maybe when I just like got old enough care. yeah like old yeah. enough they got old enough i'm not quite sure but in the beginning that was huge do not wear this around your siblings primarily my brothers i was the only girl for a very long time mm-hmm. i have a huge family i don't know if i've told you this no tell me i have 18 siblings oh wow <laughs> yeah yeah okay so you said you have the four brothers four brothers that are their birth sons okay and then my brother and I got adopted. Right. They're after the four uh-huh, in the, the lineup. Uh-huh. Yes. But before that, they adopted two boys that were older. One passed away. Mm. And one, once he became 18, he just decided to live his own life and go his own path. And then shortly, I'm thinking, I can't even remember. It was short. I think like three months or something after we were adopted, fully adopted, we went and adopted six more kids. Six at once. Six at once. So that came with two boys and four girls. Wow. Yeah. All younger than you and All your brother? Younger. Yeah. Wow. So I now am the oldest at home. So they have a son who's nine months younger than me. Got but it. I was the quote unquote oldest yes. at home and the girl. A lot of the times we get the responsibility, right? Absolutely. Like we have to be the... Yes, absolutely. <laughs> so you were in the home after you were adopted with the four older brothers, four you boys. and your brother, and then the six additional siblings. Yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. All, and all of our names start with Bs. So oh, my goodness. So tr- my parents, too. <laughs> so it's just the Brady Bunch of crazy names. Yeah, that's a lot of B names. And then we just keep getting more. When I was on my mission, my parents ended up adopting four more kids. Wow. And so it just kept, yeah, adding and adding. And now there's 18. Wow. What a um, unique experience, though. Yeah. I mean, that alone. Yeah. So many And to be elements. the oldest of all of that yeah. is also a huge technical oldest the, the oldest they've ever known absolutely um is a lot too. yes and are your adopted parents are they white yes and so the four first boys were are white. white are any additional siblings black yeah got it so the um six that we adopted at once right after us mm-hmm. they're all black and were they from the same family they're all siblings got yeah. it yeah got it so um that was a good thing that my parents did they really tried to adopt sibling groups so my brother and I, of course, mm-hmm. the six and then the four, they're all. Siblings. Yeah. And I can imagine nice to have siblings that are black. Yeah. Yeah. As well. Yeah. That was, a, that was really comforting, of course. Then you like grow up and you realize that there's definitely different experiences that you're having in your family, whether it's cognizant to your parents or not there is different experiences that you're going to be going through. Different experiences. Can you explain that more? Um, yeah, just like the way of life. Uh, there was an experience that we, my brothers had. My brothers and I had. We used to live by a gas station. We went one night. My parents would give us their debit card. And we all we would need to do is go pick up Diet Cokes for them. But we would be able to get a snack, of course, right? Cute. Since mm-hmm. we did the... We did the do. Yeah. We, we got, we <laughs> that got was your little, reward. Yeah, we got the reward. There was one night. My brothers of course, black, us three black, we would go in together. And then my two other brothers who were all, we were all kind of not the same age, but old enough. So mm-hmm. we would all kind of go together, but the two white brothers would be together. And then us three would be together. Probably just like 
we didn't do it on per. It was never purposeful. I don't think mm-hmm. it was just like either the conversation that we were having or whatever. We would all arrive together, but kind of split off, right? And we remember the the clerk, or I don't know what you would call gas station guy. Are you guys going to be paying for that? And just feeling like absolute shock, like shock and scare, you know. And then my white brothers coming around, and this was like one of my first times that I knew I would be safe with mm. my brothers like there, we never were put in an experience where we weren't safe but my brother who's a little bit younger than me was like these are my siblings we're getting stuff for our parents and we're gonna pay we're gonna here's the card uh-huh. well then it became an issue of that's not your card that's somebody else's card mm. so the cops were called we're sit down on oh, the wow as kids like teen, little young teenagers sit on the curb type of deal and wait until our parents at like 1 a.m. to come pick us up, Mm. you know? And so my white siblings would never have to have that lens on them, right? Of like, you're going to pay for that, right? Mm -hmm. Is this your card? Yes. But we had that. And I think that's something that a lot of parents don't, it's not in the forefront of their mind when they adopt interracial. Yeah. And it seems like, in that experience, and I'm curious if this came into play with church experiences as well, where you're seeing almost more vividly the contrast maybe in yeah. how white siblings and black siblings are being treated within your very own family. Absolutely. Especially in the church. I feel like callings were given to certain kids and responsibilities were given to certain kids and not the others. Mm-hmm. And some of my siblings just flat out were just like, I'm not interested in this stuff. I don't know why I'm here or have to be here other than my mom said, yeah. you know, type of yep. deal, which that's everybody's, everybody has their own journey for sure. But I also feel like there could have been a lot more equality and mm-hmm. realizing that everybody has something to offer. And just because this kid looks a certain way, dresses a certain way, doesn't mean he he can't be at that same level that you're holding these other kids to. And it's not even just my like siblings against siblings, just kids against kids, like my siblings against other kids. Like, yeah, why are they viewed as more valiant or trustworthy? You know? Yeah, absolutely. I saw that a lot. Yeah, absolutely. I can imagine, especially, yeah, when you have such a large almost focus group of, okay, how are we all treated and how are we treated the same? How are we treated differently? I want to back up a little bit. You talked about learning about the mark of Cain when you were 13. Mm. So when you were nine and you got baptized up from, let's say, nine to 13, were you, again, you were very young, but were you aware at all of any problematic history of any problematic doctrine as it relates to race? I didn't even know about polygamy. Really? I didn't know about polygamy. I I was not taught that. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense. The Mormon mission Nary's never taught that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I didn't know about polygamy. I was given, I feel personally, was given a very watered, whitewashed, rundown version of what happened. Even talking about how Joseph Smith was like ran out of multiple places was not even very focused on. It was just like, here is the doctrine. You're going to live together with your family forever if you get baptized. Then later, if you get sealed, you go on a mission. And you do what you need to do. Keep the commandments. Keep and the commandments the and the covenants yeah. and endure to the end. Yeah. I really had to do a lot of my own 
diving in and learning. When I first heard about the Mark of Cain, I was like, what is that? Like, it really shook me. I'm not going to lie. It really shook me because I was like, then are they being bad by having me a part of their church? Because I didn't see anybody else who was black Mm -hmm. in my ward stake. No one, Mm -hmm. you know? So I'm like, okay, are they... Like, are they doing the wrong thing or am I doing the wrong thing by being a part of the church? Mm, So you almost thought you felt like they were doing a wrong thing by having you, by even allowing you. Is that what you mean? Oh, wow. Because I was like, okay, well, if this is the case, then why why have they changed their mind? That was a huge thing for me. It's like, so we're just allowed to change our minds whenever we want. Mm -hmm. And then learning more and more about the church, we're like, they're just changing their minds whenever they want. Revelation, right? But changing their minds about it, I started going into a lot of like Gordon B. Hinckley stuff and Boyd K. Packer stuff and their stance on black people in the church before, you know, the the switch and stuff like that. And it's like, they really didn't want us here. Yeah. Why are we here now? You they know, said why, it quite why, explicitly. Quite explicitly. Yes. Even, you know, the current prophet mm. has said stuff especially about interracial mm. mixings, yeah. mixings, whatever. Marriages, partnerships, yeah. yeah. So, like, so you were learning this stuff of your own accord? Were you doing the research or was any of this, how did you find out? How did you even know to look? A lot of it was asking other people, especially people who, I was always told that if you looked into anything, it was anti-Mormon rhetoric, mm-hmm. right? And so I just would ask people questions and see what their answers were. And there there were some people, I remember girls camp, which is so funny. <laughs> um, there was a really trusted leader. I loved, I love her so much. She was truthfully one of the only people, Sister Hardwood, she, I like, Shout I out seriously, Sister Hardwood. I love her. <laughs> She's amazing. Um, she was like the only person who would give it to me straight. And be like, you know what? There were some sucky things that happened on our end. Um, the Mormon Meadow Massacre, things like that. And we have to do our best not to forget those things because every single person kept telling us, just leave it in the past, right? But she was one person who was like, we've got to acknowledge that we, our history comes from this and do our best to not necessarily rewrite it, but show that there were mistakes made. To acknowledge it. Yeah, there were mistakes made, and this is what we're doing going forward. We apologize or whatever, you know, how we can go forward. That was the first time where I was like, okay, we may have done something wrong in the church, but this sister is acknowledging it, and that's how I want to live my my Mormon life, you know? Like, if somebody comes up to me, I'm just walking down the street, and they're like, hey, are you Mormon? Yeah, do you know that all this stuff happened? I do. And uh, me and my home, we acknowledge it. And this is what we're doing to go forward. Absolutely. You know, like that's, I felt like that was such a beautiful way. Absolutely. Of, of acknowledging the past and yeah. not brushing it away. Yeah, that's really powerful because I think the inclination for white people generally, for me as a white person, is often, it's embarrassing. Yeah. You know it's wrong, but it doesn't affect you in the same way that it affects people of color. So it's very easy to want to say, oh, well, no, that wasn't, that was just, it wasn't a big deal, right? Or we've moved on from that. They do the same thing with polygamy, but I feel like with issues of race, it's even more so that way. So to have a person in your life saying, no, this happened, and it's important that we recognize it happened because 
that's important. Yeah. We can't also just pretend it didn't happen. Absolutely. Yeah. Like, Absolutely. From a woman in the church to, to say that, that was also, I really respected that. I bet. And so that's kind of how I continued, you know, going through high school of just like, yeah, I'm Mormon and I know that some things have been bad. And mm. I know that people think that our church is weird or we call it unique because we are the only ones that have we have the fullness of the church, right? We have the fullness of the gospel. We are unique. Mm-hmm. We are weird than what you're used to. Mm. That's what we would say, right? Like, we know we're weird. We know we're different. And we accept that. Yeah. And so that's kind of how I just kind of... Made sense of it. Made sense of it, yeah. Did you see at that point, as you're kind of discovering these things and reading what prophets have said, learning about the mark of Cain, sounds like learning about the priesthood ban that was only reversed in... 1978, which is crazy. Were you seeing a disconnect in how the church had addressed these issues versus this sister in your ward? Yeah. um, I feel like when I started, I think my junior year of seminary, that's when I kind of saw the shift of, man, there are so many members having to defend this church. Mm. Why is the church not doing more to like fix its issues Mm. you know like Mm -hmm. people are their families are splitting up because they're having to like go to bat for a church that again i didn't really feel like was going to bat for them as members and so that's kind of where i started seeing a lot of change and though i feel like at my high school especially i was truthfully just doing the like dance it was hard for me to have a really good spiritual experience unless somebody was talking to me about their vulnerability. Like, unless they were being vulnerable. If I was hearing something over the pulpit, I wasn't interested. It wasn't really doing it yeah, for it you. it wasn't resonating mm-hmm. with me. When people would share their own experiences of how they saw Jesus in their life, that was different. I felt their sincerity mm. because of the connection that they had with Jesus Christ. I really tried to just do the dance that everybody around me was doing. And then it comes to going on my mission. Mm. And I was like, yeah, I'm going to go on my mission. And this is where it becomes a missionary experience for me because I started dating a boy mm. who grew up in the church, has a very active family, lines of active family. Mm-hmm. A lot of Mormon heritage. A lot of Mormon heritage. He didn't want to be a part of the church. And that was scary for me because I was told, I've got to get married in the temple, dude. I've got to do all these things mm-hmm. so that I can live with my family forever. And if you're not going to be a part of that, this, this isn't going anywhere. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, man, I'm going to go on my mission and I'm going to show him how uh, faithful I can be mm. so that when he, when I come home, he's going to be working on himself. I've worked on myself and sacrificed, and we're going to be able to do the dang thing, right? Yeah. So you are now wanting to be the missionary for, for him. him, which, as you're saying, is a very interesting dynamic because you're first-generation convert. Yeah. He has years. years of Mormon heritage, yeah. and you're trying now to be the person that can bring him back into yeah. the fold. Yeah. Before we jump into the mission, I wanted to talk quickly about... You mentioned this dynamic growing up in the church in high school, in your high school years, being in positions of leadership, speaking, you know, bearing your testimony, the whole thing. You said something about wanting to be not good, not better, but the best. Mm -hmm. I would love to hear more about that, especially 
in light of what you said about feeling like you didn't necessarily feel a very deep maybe connection in all the ways with Mormon theology and doctrine. Mm -hmm. What was driving you to be the best Mormon? What was even driving you to go on your mission and to, you know, get your boyfriend back in the church? Yeah. So I think it comes down to, I am incredibly aware of how people perceive me. Coming from a single mom, from somebody who I dealt with, my sister going and kind of creating the same cycle that my mom did, I was going to be damned if somebody viewed me that way. Mm. And so I had two polar opposites in my life, right? I had this like addict and um, single mom, loss of a family on one side, right? Then I had this like, you've got to be the best. You've got to be perfect so that you can get to heaven. Just total opposites, right? Mm. And I was like, I'm definitely not going to do that. Mm. I told myself and I was going to stick to it. I was never going to allow myself to be where my mom and my sister were. And so I was like, well, girl, you got one other option. Yeah. (laughs) Because these are the only two examples I've ever seen in my life was the church and was total destruction. Yeah. And so I was like, okay, we're going to do our darnest to make sure that people know that you will never, they will never have to worry about you being like that. The thing was, I wasn't super into it, as in like, I didn't read my scriptures all the time. Never did that. Could care less about family home evening. Could I liked being with my siblings and my parents. Like, that was good. And I loved getting together. But I didn't really care about the doctrine of it. I just wanted to be together. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to have a good time. And going to church allowed that. I could be with friends. steak dances. Seminary was a time that I knew that majority of people around me had the same end goal. We knew what was going to be there for us if we endured to the end, right? Yeah, absolutely. At school, that's not necessarily the case, but you go to that seminary building, whole different ballgame. Yep. And so I just felt that I was really, I was getting really good at playing the game of you got to do whatever you can to be perceived a certain way. You articulated that so powerfully. It sounds like you saw two options and the only way to have a family to have the eternity to have all these things that you wanted was mormonism that was the only path there yeah and it makes sense that you would see it that way especially knowing that you came to the church very young and how much your life was shaped by that Mm -hmm. and that sounds like a lot of pressure yeah that sounds like a ton of pressure on so many levels and a really hard spot to be in as a young person who's just figuring themselves out and wanting, I can imagine, to explore, you know, as you were saying with, yeah, I want to wear a thong. (laughs) I want to kiss a boy. But then you're feeling this immense pressure. It sounds like a much higher level of pressure because of those added layers of your story. Yeah. When I was taken away, I had so much anger towards my mom up until my son was born honestly i've mm. been i felt so much anger i i've been, went 17 oh, 17 plus years without talking to her mm-hmm. knew where she was knew that i can contact her at any time refused because i had so much anger because i when i was taken away i felt such a lack of love and so i felt like all these formative years i'd been searching to find love and acceptance and an acceptance in a way of like I know without with what I'm doing, they will love me. Mm. So again, it goes back to like me kind of 
moving my chess player certain ways, right? So that I know like if I do this, it's going to show that I am faithful and I'm going to look faithful in their eyes if I do it this way. And that will earn me their love. It will earn me their love. And it's taken me a lot of years, especially now being post-Mormon, it's taken me a lot of years to like acknowledge that I did those things. Mm. I was scared that I was never going to be loved because I did know that my mom loved me. I did. I think the betrayal of her, her actions kind of led me to a place where I was like, I don't think I'll ever feel love again. Mm-hmm. And so I have to make sure that I do. Yeah, absolutely. And by doing these things, I'm going to feel loved. Yeah. Wow. So powerful. And I think it speaks to what I find really, really devastating in a lot of ways about Mormonism generally is that people can argue about this, but I think the love the theology of Mormon love, I don't find unconditional. Right. And it sounds like you are experiencing that in a very real way. Yeah. And not only feeling like maybe the love of God or getting the rewards of love of God, but also you feel that from your community and from your society is that in order to be safe and to be loved, there are specific ways that I have to behave. Yes. And the stakes were incredibly high for you in a way that many of us won't understand because of what you expressed, you know, with your mother. That's so intense. It's a lot. It's a lot. Yeah. Correct me if I'm if I'm wrong on this or tell me what comes up for you with this, but you were talking about when you joined the church as a nine-year-old, there was this sense of safety and the sense of community, which, as we've said, the church can absolutely do that and does do that in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. But I wonder if that's the cost of that safety and that community is is what you just described. Absolutely. Mm. I tr- And I believe that for every member. Mm. Like, you know that you have to walk a certain line to receive that. Just think about people who become inactive. How often are you checking on them other than to benefit you? Mm. Yep. What's the cost of the love? Yeah, absolutely. Wow, thank you so much for sharing all of that. That's incredibly poignant. And I think just a really, really important lens, as you were saying, a lens that I think you uniquely have to show something that I think speaks to something that happens generally in the church, but that you experienced in a much more intense, again, high stakes way. Let's go back to the mission era. Yeah. So you're dating your now husband, spoiler alert. Yeah. Ended up getting married. You ended up getting married to him, which is lovely. You decide to go on a mission. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like going on a mission was part of that for you? Was it, this is what I need to do to be a good Mormon? What motivated you to get on your mission? Was it mostly to help your then husband? Let's talk more about what got you on the mission and then what your mission was like. Yeah. So definitely to help my now husband, I wanted to prove to him like, I can sacrifice this these 18 months with you, the person who I truly love so much to show you that this is what we need in our life. Mm-hmm. But also, I will never, ever forget how proud my parents were of me. And I have messed up a lot. I was not good at school. I had a lot of trauma that dwelled into school. I was also, again feeling so much that I was just playing the part that when I did this huge thing of sacrificing 18 months, my parents were so proud of me. And that there's that love, right? Like, 
I did this chess piece and they showed me love. Mm -hmm. They showed me how proud they were. Mm -hmm. And I've always wanted my parents to be proud of me. I think every child wants their parents Absolutely. to be proud Absolutely, yeah. You know, doing that was a huge growth in my mind and my parents' relationship. I also really struggled with the fact that I was adopted. I'm just like, I know who my, I'm old enough to know who my parents are. Mm-hmm. And now I have these new ones and I have to, you know, that there was always kind of this, not necessarily, um, headbutt but there was just this like cartilage in between right like there was just a little something always there yeah between uh, my parents and I and so yeah I just felt really proud and so those two things were like okay you're doing this Mm -hmm. you're going in the middle of the ocean yeah where'd you go I served in Micronesia oh wow scary mission you're the first person I've ever met that served in Micronesia yeah yeah it was very intense I was not prepared for how much trauma would come up on my mission. Seeing people live in poverty, more than poverty, like truthfully third world as poverty as poverty Mm -hmm, can be, you know, mm -hmm. like with zero resources type of living. Yeah, I struggled a lot on my mission. It also gave me the opportunity to kind of whenever I did see a glimmer to make sure to write that down and make sure to send that dispenser of like, this sucks out here. This is the worst experience of my life. Yeah. In a way, it just like felt like the worst thing in the world. But yeah, man, this happened. This we, miracle. This miracle, man. You know, like, and seeing him respond back, just like, I'm so proud of you. And y- you inspire me every day. Like, who doesn't want to hear that? A eh? absolutely. I'm a woman. Yeah. Right? Like, we yep. naturally, every person loves to hear that. Also, just again, I am sacrificing for you, Spencer. Mm-hmm. I'm going through all of these health troubles and all you know my mental health troubles so that we can be together forever Mm -hmm. type of thing yeah like proving yourself almost oh that's another i've never heard a mission spoken about that way thank you i think there's so much about missions that we fail to articulate which is young people looking for validation Mm -hmm. looking for you know, being that age is hard. Yeah. It's hard. You're trying to figure out what you want to do with your life. You're trying to figure out if you want to study and what you want to study. And I see missions. I see my mission in a similar way to what you described, almost as a way to just like, everyone's going to support me on this mm-hmm. and I'm going to get a lot of positive attention. Yeah. Quite frankly. Yeah. Especially being a woman. Especially doing it. being a woman doing it. Mm-hmm. And that seems it's crazy because I've actually been reflecting on this personally and I've never talked to anybody about it in this way, but really coming to terms with the fact, I think I went on a mission in large part because it gave me a lot of positive attention. Yeah. And people thought I was awesome, awesome for doing it. it. Mm-hmm. And people would say, I'm sure you got this too. You'll be an amazing missionary. Mm-hmm. You're going to do such wonderful things. Wow, the people of Micronesia are so lucky to have you. Mm-hmm. Like you said, who doesn't want to hear that? Yeah. But that's really problematic when you look at what a mission actually is, what it actually can do to people. Yeah. As you mentioned, with this added layer of trauma, when you're seeing people in these circumstances with lack of resources, it's something that you want to do for that reason. But when push comes to shove, missions can be hellish. Yeah. yeah <laughs> and absolutely. they can have really long-term impacts on your physical health and your mental health. Yeah. And as you said, you had a lot of mental and physical health problems, yeah. right? Yeah. Not only, you know, the physical of myself and the mental of myself, but the people who I was teaching, you know, like they have now long impact of that because either I taught them 
and we ended up not baptizing them. So now they're on record. So now they're always going, people are always going to go back to them or they have been baptized. And if they don't currently go, they're always going, again, always going to be part of that record. And so I struggled a lot because when I came home, I just felt like, I I hate to bring up that word again, but like I was a fraud on my mission Mm. because I realized what missions really were. I didn't really know other than my dad. Like I didn't know anybody truthfully to me who can explain to me their their mission. And and he served in the Philippines, which is very close to Micronesia. So it was fun to be able to have that like experience together. But a lot of the people there, this may be the first time they ever hear of anything like this. I'm like, oh, I have this like God complex that I know what you need to know. So you need to listen to me. Yeah, I'm going to teach you. You're going to get baptized so that you can have it. If I wasn't there, you wouldn't have that kind of feeling. Just every night made me feel so gross, Mm. so gross. And then coming home, peeling back the layers of my mission, I was just like, man, this makes me feel caca. Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. Makes me feel so gross that I, I thought I was just so good and holy that I had to go across several oceans you know i traveled for like 27 hours Mm -hmm. to go teach these people so that they can be saved yes and you realize when you're actually in that situation this is not what they actually need no they need actual resources they need actual resources exactly you mentioned this word earlier about when you got baptized at nine it feels predatory it feels like these people are really vulnerable yes and they're vulnerable to certain messaging yeah it can feel, you kind of sense that nature of it, of why are we seeking out the most vulnerable people and putting them as numbers on our records when really with the amount of money and resources that the church has, with the amount of time and energy of missionaries willing to give, a lot of actual actual good. Yeah. A lot of actual good Because I started thinking back to my baptism Mm. and my conversion to the church. Did they seek me out because I had been going over to this neighbor's house, I had been, of course, sharing with them like, oh, I don't have a dad with, like, my dad doesn't live with me. Mm-hmm. And we've moved all these times. My mom has you know? to work a lot. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Like sharing these very vulnerable things about me. Was that like just feeding for them? Mm-hmm. And that is like really heartbreaking to me, actually, because I did believe the things that they were teaching me for so long. Mm-hmm. And to come out of the realization, I'm like, shit, I taught that to other people. Mm. Very painful. Very painful and very, I just want to say commendable to have that level of, you know, reflection and that level of unpacking is just, like you said, so painful. So to be willing to do it, I find deeply, deeply admirable because that's an intense deconstruction on many levels. Again, that a lot of people, I mean, I've deconstructed i'm deconstructing but there's less levels of that trauma and intensity and i think that that's really hard to do yeah really hard to do i think of you know utilizing therapy and letting myself sit where i am and sit where i was like going back to that has allowed those opportunities for me because at first i was very standoffish to Mm. doing any of the work yeah and it just a lot of the times, I think we, as we get older, we realize that trauma really does build up in your body and it causes a lot of small scenarios to become very big. Mm-hmm. And I was tired of my life always feeling like a soap opera, 
like why does everything have to be so intense all the mm-hmm. time and so doing the work it yeah sucks not fun yeah it's a lot of it's work it is what it is but it was so necessary for me to realize like why am i having these feelings why is this feeling so overwhelming all the time mm-hmm. why can i like why does it why do i get a visceral reaction when i step into a church now going through the ebbs and flows of that deconstruction i think is the only thing that has truly helped me absolutely get to the place absolutely. where i can at least be yes and i think that's such a fantastic point i've been thinking about this a lot because some dumbass commented on one of my reels and he was Ooh. like well i'm gay and i've left the church and i'm fine leave it alone get a pet and i've been thinking and i don't mean to project this on this person maybe this individual is actually fine But in my mind, there's a reckoning that must happen around this stuff. It's harder to do the shit you got to do to get through to the place you've just described than it is to be like, yeah, I left the church, but you know, whatever, like I'm fine. And I always admire people willing to do that work because I'm very much in the stage of like needing to even do more. So it it is always very inspiring to me to hear. It's so easy to be like, I served a mission. I baptized XYZ123, came home, got married in the temple, raising my family, going to church every Sunday. That is so easy. You want to know why? Because there's structure. There is a roadmap for you. Mm-hmm. When you don't have that roadmap, you have to figure shit out by yourself. And it's like, <laughs> of course, it would be easy to choose the path that's already been Absolutely. paid. You know? So, Absolutely. Again, going back to admiring that that work. I am the same way. Like when I see people actually acknowledging things from the past or their own deconstruction, I'm like, wow, you are very strong because it's not easy to do those things. Absolutely. It's hard. Okay. Let's fast forward a little bit. I have, I always say this, but I'm like, damn, we could talk forever. (laughs) Let's fast forward to you get home from your mission. I know you married your husband. Mm -hmm. Did you have a temple marriage? What was that like getting married to your husband and then leading up to why you decided to leave. Yeah. I got home in October and we were married February 3rd. October 17th, I was married February 3rd. Very quick. Mm-hmm. All the speculations, right? Mm. And that's not even very quick to some, but it was pretty quick, you know? Mm. Like, we, it was pretty quick. <laughs> yeah. In a way, I would never not marry my husband, but in a way, I was just like, okay, this is the natural progression. I sacrificed. I did this. I love you and I want to be together forever. So like, let's get married. So yeah, we did have a temple marriage. When I think of people getting married and they're like at the end of the altar, right? I never think of that as like super, I don't know if the word is religious, but like uh, ritualistic. Mm. It just is like, oh, that's just what you do. I don't know. In my brain, it just compartmentalizes that way. But kneeling across the altar felt felt very ritualistic. Mm. And I was like, this is kind of creepy. And I did. I And I told Spencer that like when we were done with yeah. everything, I told him, I was like, that was really for us like to do that, who we are. It was very weird. Like that's not how I envisioned our marriage. Yeah. It didn't fit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It didn't fit yeah, us. Yeah, yeah. You described that well. Yeah. And so that was, there was a very big sense and there still is of disappointment my big time, who I was back then. Because yeah, we can get remarried, right? We can do a ceremony and do all that. But that wasn't our love then. Mm, That's a great point. we were young and so ready for each other. And it just wasn't what I wanted. Absolutely. Yeah. It's carried a lot of disappointment throughout the years. Yeah. That makes so much sense. Yeah. Sure. 
for the time we are doing what we had to do, but it doesn't mean that for the time we could have had much better and we deserved much better. We deserved something that felt right Mm -hmm. and that we had more control over. Yeah. That's, I feel so similarly. I wish that there was ever that option. It didn't seem like there was an option. Not at all. You get married in the temple. Especially with what you went through to get there. Yeah. Like this is you, your whole life, you doing what you thought needed to be done is all up until to this moment. You know, you have repented. You've done all of the the stepping stones to get there. You're here and you've got to do it. And then when you when I was there, it still wasn't mm, right. Yeah. And you're promised that this is the thing. Mm-hmm. This is everything. Mm-hmm. And then to give so much of your life, so much of yourself, and then to get there and be like, well, damn. Yeah. This <laughs> wasn't quite it. This, this didn't hit as yeah. well as I thought it was going to. Absolutely. I can relate so much to that. How long was it from being married until you stepped away from the church? And tell me about how you said... Okay, you said your shelf started getting weight on it at 13. Mm-hmm. Very young. Yeah. So what led you? Were you still building up your shelf this whole time? And what led you to ultimately stepping away from the church? A lot of people say like Idaho and Utah Mormons are very similar. I was in Boise, Idaho at the time. I was like, okay, well, we had to move to Utah because my husband's work, which was in 2018. I was like pretty partial. I didn't really care. I was just like glad we can be our own family because our families were there. And this was really just like the try of the times, right? We're one year into our marriage. We made it that one year, which everybody says is so hard, but we made it that one year. We're going to move, really become our own family, right? And we moved to Utah, which is supposed to be the pinnacle of it is the pinnacle of Mormon. (laughs) It's not supposed to be. It is. And um, we come here and. I get a really heavy dose of what it's like to be, what are the standards and what you should be upholding as a member in Utah. I felt more lonely, I think, than I ever had. I didn't have friends here, which I got. I understood that I didn't have friends. But wherever I've been in the church, I've always been able to make friends pretty easily, having that structure of the church. I remember, and I sent you this, this screenshot of what I had posted on Facebook of just after trying and trying to fit into the Utah mold or to be, again, that good Mormon, I just wasn't fitting. And I kept showing up. I did. I I tried to show up. I would drag Spencer. I love him. Love you, babe. (laughs) I would drag him to church. I will tie or tie in the car or in the parking lot if I have to. We have to go to church type of thing because I was still trying so hard. I was in this new space. This is the Mecca I got to be able to find friends. Mm -hmm. I've got to, you know, find my community. And what's the best way to do that? By joining them, right? Yep. Go to church. Join them. Yep. (laughs) Um, So I was really trying. And then I kept having bad experience after bad experience. And and what I shared with you of just feeling so invisible, even though I was in a room where I was the only person who looked like me. Yeah. You know, like how... It was so painful. Yeah, tell that story. I kept attending this ward, and it was the ward that we were supposed to be in. And I would do my best to reach out to people, like shake their hand when I'd see them or talk to them. And I sat down, and this was just like a a singular experience. But there was a lady who kept saying, you know, is there any any new members here? And I would raise my hand, and other people would raise their hand, and they would go through welcoming them and telling people to, you know, uh, communion with them, you know, make, make a community. 
And every time I would raise my hand after everyone would go, okay, we're on to the lesson. And having experiences like that where I'm like, I am literally raising my hand. I'm in front row so that everybody could notice me. And they were ignoring it. Ignoring. Literally flat out ignoring it. Flat out ignoring me. Somebody who I'm friends with now who has also left the church was in that ward. And she, she, like her validation to me was something that was so tangible because I thought, am I crazy? Am I just sitting here? Woe is me that nobody has noticed me. And she goes, no, I was there with my own eyes, multiple weeks, you going to church and them just brushing over you. Hmm. Again, the only person of color in the stake, let, you know, yeah. let alone the ward, the small room of Relief Society, and nobody focusing on me or mm-hmm. acknowledging me in the slightest. And and that was really painful. And I felt like that was a common theme of my experience as I was trying to be a, again, valiant, that's the word I want to use, valiant member of the Mormon society here in Utah. Mm-hmm. And I had posted it about my experience on Facebook. And it went pretty viral. For the time, I should say viral, it got over 50 or I think it was 70,000 shares, 50,000 comments. That's viral for right now. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) it it was a lot. And I was so shocked at how many people were sharing it and saying how how similar their experience was because I felt so alone. Mm. And maybe because I was the only person of color in the mm-hmm. ward at the time. So frustrating how many people were just like, oh, that that doesn't happen. That's just Utah. You have to move out of Utah. And I was like, I just moved here, bro. Yeah, also, my life. I can't. I can't. <laughs> yeah, like, I just can't leave. Yeah, my husband because, works here. <laughs> yes, like, it, that was really frustrating. And I felt very invalidated until I was able to speak to this other girl who was a part of the the ward. I should say, she didn't tell me until like two years later. Mm. So I was living with that like, is this just me? Is this just me? It must just be because that's what they're saying, right? Mm-hmm. That's just you. The, this is such a singular experience. Yeah. This doesn't happen anymore. Well, um, and with the added element of being the only person of color, it's like, how are you not going to see that there's a connection yeah, to that? Yeah. In a way that maybe other people, because they're not of color who yeah. are there, are going to be unwilling to validate for you too. Yeah. Yeah. And it was sad because not only the bishop, but other people on the Facebook told me that I should probably check out a Polynesian ward. You're kidding me. If I wanted to have that community, I should look into going to a Polynesian ward. Yeah. <laughs> That's so crazy. Insane, actually. Yeah. That's actual insanity. I think that's when my husband was like, we're done. Yeah. Excuse me? Yeah. That somebody would just be like, well, if you're not feeling comfortable here, you can try a poly ward. Yeah. You're like, well, I'm not Polynesian. I'm not Polynesian. A, maybe I will, though, yeah. because probably it would be lot, better. <laughs> yeah. It's like, there's seeming a lot better option than here. Yeah. But the fact, like, I'm not Polynesian. Yeah. And you wouldn't know that because you didn't get the time. Yes. To know me. And for that to be the response instead of, damn. I'm so sorry. We got to be better. Yeah. We need to fix our inclusion. Yes. Instead, like, "Eh, well, you should probably just try something else. Yeah. Because this isn't really our fault anyway. Yeah. Oof, that is nasty. Yeah. I'm really sorry. And in that, like, um, Facebook post, and I had shared this with you of just the fact that I was still doing all I could to, to protect the peace of Mormons. Yeah, right? you can see it all over your post. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I know this isn't everyone, 
This, the, you know, I, I'm not saying this is all Utah. Mm-hmm. Relax, you know. But this Try- is my experience. Yes. But, but, but just my experience. Yes, just my experience. Mm-hmm. I'm not speaking to anybody else. You know, I was doing a lot to try to protect the feelings of others. Mm-hmm. And, and the church itself. And the, yeah, in the church itself. Yeah. Was that kind of your final straw, yeah. would you say? Mm-hmm. That you just decided this isn't worth... Yeah, I didn't attend church after yeah. that. Yeah, that makes again. so much sense. Mm-hmm. How has it been for you with all that we've discussed? How has it been for you stepping away? I know you've spoken to lots of work, therapy, and deconstructing. Where would you say you're at now with having left? That is a great question. I don't have a roadmap anymore. Mm. I don't have a structure. I don't know what's going to happen to me once I die. And so this that I have now is so much more special to me. Mm. My son is so special to me. And even without the church, I know I will see him again. I know that he is fully meant to be my husband and my child. He's a miracle. He's a miracle. Yeah. Uh, the the ropes that we jumped to be able to get him into our lives, he's a miracle. That alone has shown me no matter what God, what Jesus, what church, what religion, he is meant to be ours. And the life that we get to live now is the only thing I know that I have now, mm-hmm. and I'm going to relish in it. It has been so special to me, and I feel like it's made life seem so much more special because when I was in the church, it was like, no, don't don't worry about maybe what you miss out on here, right? Because you got eternity to go. Yep. You know, so don't worry. You got this. Now it's like, I don't know what I have, but I do know what I have here. Yeah. And now. Yeah. And it's really And so you can be in that presence. Mm-hmm. So beautiful. Amen and amen. Present. Yeah. yeah. So beautifully said. I wonder about this feeling you spoke to of so much of your Mormon experience being about seeking validation, seeking love. And now that you've stepped away from that, what it has felt like, because I can imagine in one way it might be difficult because you might not have the same validation you were getting before when you were doing the dance. What has that been like? I think for a couple years after being post-Mormon, I really tried to still protect Mormon feelings. uh, And I also tried to do like, I'm not gonna, just because I left the church doesn't mean I'm gonna smoke and do drugs and drink. And, you know, I always tried to like perpetuate that. Now I'm just like, I'm gonna choose to do what I do and live how I live. And I didn't feel a lot of protection in the church, by the church, I should say. I didn't feel a lot of protection by the church. So why do I need to protect it? Mm. Especially since I don't associate with it anymore. Yep, snaps to that. And so I... I'm just kind of, I, I don't think of it. I, I don't know. I, I really don't, unless I'm like around family and I try to be respectful. I try to have really open conversations. One thing I really, really struggled with in the church, and I've always struggled with the church, I was never able to live through my own intuition mm. because I was always told that it was the Holy Ghost or, you know, that's Jesus working through you. And now I know that I am pretty darn cool. Mm-hmm. I'm very smart. I have a lot of value. And it, yeah. we, we don't have a roadmap, but we do have a lot of peace knowing that we chose to be where we're at. I love that. It's such a joy. It's such a gift yeah. to live your life on your own terms. I could talk forever. I want to ask you one last question, which is, as a woman of color now, 
post-Mormon in Utah. Maybe some of the modeling work you do comes into this because I know you're very involved community-wise by doing modeling for a lot of Utah companies. I'm curious if you have any thoughts on that experience specifically and just being a person of color now as a Mm post-Mormon. And I will say, me now being in the post-Mormon space, I've done this podcast for eight months now, and you're the first person of color I've interviewed, which is a massive failure, to be frank, on my part. I have realized it's a massive blind spot for me, even in my work, is intersectionality, especially with people of color. And it's something that I'm determined to do better at, but I have failed to do so far. I also sense sometimes, myself included, post-Mormons feel very enlightened, Mm -hmm. and they still have a lot to unpack around race, around sexism, around all the things. So that was just a whole long spiel, but I just am curious if anything comes up for you around any of that. I I think I'm going to say something that's a little spicy to it, <laughs> please. But I, I, it's something that I've noticed, um, especially in the wake of of TikTok, like all these social medias, right? TikTok, yeah. podcasts in general. I think being post Mormon gives, especially white people, a sense of like something bad has happened to me, and now I get to share with you my martyrdom or whatever, you know. Mm-hmm. And I, I I think that is something that's underlining i don't think a lot of people are cognizant of that but i do think it's an underlying like yeah we get it you're white you've been oppressed oppressed i don't know i I would never use that word but that's what people have said yeah um and if that's how you want to acknowledge it then acknowledge it but i think that being black in utah it shows you how much so you're on like the back front of people's minds Mm. Unless somebody calls you out. Height of, what is the word? Um, Black Lives Matter movement, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. I started getting into the modeling scene. I was a makeup artist previously. So I started doing modeling. And people were like, well, just reach out to companies. And I reached out to one company in the six and a half years. One company I reached out to. They responded back to me saying, hey, we're so sorry. You're just not really um, the look we're going for. Mm Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, the only look is white, right? Mm-hmm. White, predominantly blonde. Probably skinny. Some, yeah, yeah, skinny. <laughs> um, sometimes they throw a brunette in there, mm-hmm. but still white. And I'm like, cool, 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 cool. Never, never doing that again. Mm-hmm. Not going to reach out to any companies because I don't like that feeling. Yeah, oh, absolutely. <laughs> and then Black Lives Matter hits, right? The next Monday, hey, Braley, we'd love to work with you. Oh, my gosh. Same company? Same company. <sighs> still have the DM. We'd love to work with you. You're, we like, let's get together. What's your rate? The the gall and gumption, the gasp I gave when I saw that DM come through. I was like, "You've got to be effing kidding me!" Yeah, you just told me that I was not what you wanted. The look, the uh-huh. look for your your company. Yet now, when ever you've realized, yeah, we got oh, a scurry. Shit. We got a scurry. We don't have any diversity. Now you want to work with me. Mm. Wrong. Bye. Never. Never, icky. never, never. Yep, like, you so know, icky. It, it did become a theme because a lot of companies out of the woodworks that never worked with people of color and any general, Hispanic, indigenous, nothing, Polynesian, zero. It became like a trend, right? I think everybody saw that, not just in Utah, but in yeah. the United States media. In a sense, did I capitalize on that? Yeah. Good. A- I have never seen somebody who looks like me do this. Absolutely. I'm going to do it. Yeah. You know, like, yeah. And get paid for it. 
and get paid more. Quite yeah, frankly. good. Like if you're not going to use diverse diversity and then now all of a sudden you need it, you're going to pay my rate and then some. Yes. And, and that is just because there was never acknowledgement of people who look like me. Mm-hmm. I also had a lot of, um, what is the word? Like mentors saying, you know, you are a person of color in Utah. You need to be being paid enough. Yeah, good. And because at first I was like, I don't even know what to do. You know, this is so new to me. And luckily with the mentorship that I had there, like you need to know your worth and then some. Good. And that gave me a really big backbone because I had always kind of let people walk over me when it came to that. I think a lot of biracial people feel too black for the white people and Mm -hmm. too white for black people. Mm -hmm. It also became my look, right? My hair is straight curled, straight ends. I used to have naturally curly hair. I did have health issues that changed my hair. But yeah, I I became the Mormon look. I'm not Mormon, but white look that they were looking for because I was told I wasn't what they were looking for. Yeah. You know? And so I started to see myself for sure morph into Utah, the Utah look, right? Mm-hmm. And we do have one. Yeah. That's why companies from all over the United States countries send their product here to be shot because they want the a Utah certain look. look. Yeah. yeah. And I had companies ask me if I could straighten my hair, like um, not mm-hmm. have it as curly. Yeah. You know, they wanted it curled a certain way or they would hire a hairstylist so that they can do my hair. I had a lot of really bad experiences with that. I had a lot of hate for myself for that. Why couldn't I have my hair curled and still feel beautiful? Mm -hmm. Or why did my curls have to look a certain way to be viewed as something that you would want to use? Yeah. And that was really painful. Now I have a look that I like and I, and it's because I like it. I do my hair the way I want because I like it that way. Hair is a huge thing in black culture, of course, as mm-hmm. everybody knows. I grew up with a white mom, two white moms to be exact. Uh, I never, up until a certain age, I never had my hair in braids. I never did that type of stuff. And so I can't really speak on the true experience of black models in Utah fully because of my kind of interesting dynamic. But yeah, I... I I've had times where companies have hired makeup artists to do my makeup and all they've had is a shade two tones darker than yours. Mm -hmm. And it's really painful when you are sitting in front of a camera and you see yourself and you're like, that w- it wasn't me in the beginning and it's really not me. Yeah. You know, like I'm already having to put a mask on to appease this company and now I look like a clown. Yeah, there's like a literal mask. Yeah. 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 And that's how much they want to hide me mm. is really... Um, yeah, really, really sad in the beginning. But I feel like now I've been, I've got some skin in the game. I've worked with a lot of companies that I have seen do the actual work. Good. Hire DEI, you know, to do work within their companies so that they know how to be better humans. Yeah. Just in general. like What they should have been doing right, all along. We've got to learn. <laughs> yeah. And that's really admirable. I just want to shout out one company. It's called Sense of Style. And they would do... Um, photo shoots and I would love how they would hire black makeup artists oh cool you know and and not just because black makeup artists know how to do black makeup right but to give that opportunity to um, a minority here in Utah is also something that is really amazing to me and the owner also has a black child which showing your kids 
that you're putting your money where your mouth is. is yes. So important. Yeah. And I think more companies need to see that. But I, I have seen a shift. I've seen growth, which is way better than I can say in the beginning. And I'm hopeful that Utah will get better. But it definitely starts with having these conversations yeah. and with people who don't look like me having these conversations. Yeah, totally. And acknowledging, similar to what you did, you know, like acknowledging, I messed up. I haven't done this. And it's true. Like, they're, we're not going to sugarcoat it anymore, right? Like, totally. we've got to know, like, we've got to make changes and not just to have black people, to have indigenous and Polynesian, because there are members of not only the LDS church, but models that are, that deserve, des- deserve to be seat. in those spaces. Mm-hmm. Totally. And deserve a voice. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. I really do. And again, it's, we could talk about this forever. I never want it to seem like you as a woman of color need to only speak on that experience or teach me as a white person or right. my audience, who whomever among them are white. But I do appreciate that you're willing to speak to that. So thank you. I so value your story. I value your presence. And I'm really grateful for your willingness to come and share that with me and with this community. And yeah, there's so many things you spoke to that just illuminated parts of my own experience too, which I think is just shows how wise you are, how thoughtful you are. And thank you so much. Thank you. I appreciate it. And I just hope that um, whoever sees this gets the opportunity to just listen. I think that I see a lot of your comments, you know, and I'm just like, are you listening to it or are you projecting? Mm. And I think a lot of the times it's it's the projecting. Yeah. And um, everybody has their own experiences. We we get that right. But uh, listening to others is the only way to learn. I think everybody, even people in the church, I, I've learned all the time from people in the church. Like you can still learn from somebody even though you have a differing opinion. Absolutely. And differing beliefs. Absolutely. It was such an honor. Thank you. Amen. Thank you for being here. And thank you, everyone, for listening. Bye. G-I-R-L-S-T